Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put on at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that they could somehow reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, 
and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that, ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. <clears throat> all right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for being here today. If it's, if it's your first Sunday, I'm uh, glad you guys are with us. Uh, as I said, first service, thanks to Laura for reading half the Bible to us. Well done. Um, we, uh, it's a long passage, obviously, that, that's one story, which is why we had it read, and, and we'll uh, preach some high points of it today, as you'll see in just a second. But we are nearing the end of a series in the book of Acts, so it's been uh, almost 13 months already. Actually, uh, yeah, pretty much almost today, actually, has been the 13-month mark, and so we're, uh, we have three weeks left, including today. We're almost there. Um, we, uh, there's so much to summarize in terms of where we've been in this book, but it's basically, it's the last historical book of the Bible, genre-wise, and it deals with what happened after Jesus rose from the dead, how he appeared to people, proving it was really him in the body and not just like a ghost, how he taught from the Old Testament, saying all of this was about me, so he kind of helped, uh, helped the early disciples understand how to read the Bible. Uh, he taught about the kingdom of God, he talked about mission, how he wanted the, the pronouncement of the fact that he was alive to go to the ends of the earth. And so a lot of what Acts has to do with then is, like, is, is the question, what is the church and what should the church do when they gather, when they meet, and what should Christians do in a communal way, an individual kind of way as well, but just uh, with their lives throughout the week and um, what is mission, what does it look like to, to start churches and uh, to spread the kingdom evangelistically and, and with deeds as well with our, with our actual bodies and, and time and money and things like that. And so we, we've been seeing that throughout the book of Acts. And a lot of it's narrative, though. Acts is not like a, um, you know, a list of do's and don'ts. It's just, it's a story, as you saw today. A co it's a collection of historical, theological narratives that tell us about Christ, ultimately, uh, through the lens of, of this guy named Paul, Peter before him, and many other, many other Christians as well that, that we've met in this series. But Paul here, for the last, basically half of the book, he's been the main figure, aside from Christ himself. And we are basically today on the way to Rome. So if you've been here, you know kind of what's going on. Paul, 
Paul went to Jerusalem as a Jewish man who's now a Christian to preach the gospel to Jews, knowing they want to kill him. They think he's a traitor and so forth. And so he thinks, I'm just going to go there and preach. They're going to kill me and well, call it, call it a life. Call it, call it a ministry at that point. But he doesn't. Jesus says, I want you to go to Rome as well and preach the gospel there. And so through a variety of circumstances, he is accused. Uh, he's brought before these governors and magistrates and proconsuls and client kings of Rome that have jurisdiction over the uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding area during that time in history. And he appeals to Caesar, which means he, he, there's, there's a, um, an injustice happening. There's lies uh, about him kind of being put forth, the proconsuls and the tribunes and all of that. And he says, I appeal to Caesar, knowing that Jesus wants him to go there, but also to kind of clear his name. And so he is going there now. Like when you appeal to Caesar and Paul's a Roman citizen, that just means you appeal to Caesar. You appeal in the face of injustice, like I want to bring my case before the emperor. And so he's going to go do that. And so this is like the first day of, okay, he's actually going now. He spent a couple of years in prison in Caesarea. He's actually going to start to travel in the Mediterranean, uh, kind of northwest, essentially, uh, to, uh, towards Greece and over to Rome. Uh, but it doesn't happen, as we saw today, it doesn't happen without trouble. And trouble is important in storytelling, and trouble in this case is important in history telling and theological history telling because trouble helps tell the gospel story, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. So you'll see that as we go forth today. A couple of general observations, though, about this. This is basically, as you just heard read, the, the worst possible boating scenario that you can, like, drum up, right? Pretty much from day one or a few days into it, things start to go south. But there's massive storms. There's weeks without eating. Constant fear of almost certain death. The ship itself eventually is torn to pieces. Then they need to swim to, uh, to land, uh, in, in the end. And yet amidst all of that, there's glimpses of hope strewn throughout, like the angel speaking to Paul, saying, none of you will die. Uh, Paul feeding the crew amidst the storm, uh, ending a bit of a fast uh, for them, and, and they break bread together. And the best of it really is the last statement, which says, all were brought safely to land. Not a single person died of any of the crew, any of the prisoners, any, any of the crew, any of the leaders on board. Everyone survives, which is incredible when you think about it, right? It's reminded me of the movie Sully. Have you guys seen this movie uh, starring Tom Hanks? It's a great movie. I've seen it twice, actually. It was my wife and I have. We, we loved it so much. But it's a true story that recounts that U.S. Airways flight in 2009 that took that emergency landing in the Hudson. You guys may remember the news story of this if you haven't seen the movie, but that flew through a flock of birds and lost all engine power and crash landed or emergency landed in the Hudson. And all 155 crew and passengers survive that. Like, it's just, when you watch that or think about it, you just think, like, how? How in the world, right, is, can, can that happen? And I think that story is a lot like this one, where you read it and you think, how is that possible? How, how is there not one person at least that lost their life along the way? Um, and maybe even, like, we think, you'd think half the, the crew, at least, maybe three-quarters, kind of giving their lives for the others or so forth. And, and there's so many threats. There's so many kind of off-ramps on the highway of safety here that, that could have been taken but just, just weren't. So you kind of like get a sense for God's presence here in, in, a, in a general sense that all are saved. And we'll talk more about that later. But also you probably saw that this is another thing that kind of stands out when you read it that maybe you saw is just Paul's demeanor. Uh, he is, I think here, the, the definition of even-keeled. Like, if you look it up in the dictionary, there might be a picture of Paul from Acts 27. You know, he, he is just the definition of a, a rock. 
throughout all of this, even as he fears because there's a, there's a suggestion that he's still afraid, which he's human, right? I mean, everyone's afraid. But uh, even as he's afraid, he's a rock. Even as he fears, he is steady. Um, even as the angel speaks to him, even as he predicts early on that the voyage will come with danger and, and injury. Um, and so, as we get into theology then today, let me just ask you this rhetorical question, but think about this. When you mix the themes of boat and ship on the stormy seas on the one hand and the calmness of a protagonist over and against the angst of the crew on the other hand and blend those things together, who else besides Paul in the Bible does that make you think of? And, and there should be a couple of men. Uh, first, Jonah in the Old Testament and the prophet, and second, Jesus himself, who is a second Jonah of sorts. And so in, in Mark 4, one uh, instance of this in the gospel accounts of the New Testament is when Jesus is with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and something kind of similar transpires. A, a furious squall comes up, it says, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. This is what Jesus did. Isn't that just like at face value incredible that Jesus was like that? So I'm not going to preach this today for time's sake. It's kind of not the point. But I, I do want you to see the broad connections between Acts 27 and and what's going on here, and Paul and Jesus, in a way too, and their, and their calmness. Because what you start to see is, on a macro level at least, so just a big picture level with Acts 27 in mind, you start to see that Jesus is there. And this is important because Jesus is not named in the story, and yet he is all over it. This is an extremely important biblical principle to understand when you interpret it, and when you understand it. Even if Jesus isn't there, he is there. This is how the Bible reads itself uh, in many and various ways. So I don't have time to kind of go into that today to sort of, you know, defend it or argue for it or to show it because we're, we're looking at a long passage today. But this is how the Bible reads itself. Jesus, if he's not shouted, he's whispered. If he's not explicitly unpacked and sort of stated, he's implicitly shown uh, in poetry or in narrative or in prophecy or in apocalypse. And so what I want to do today then is kind of off of this then is... is um, Ask the question, if this is where Jesus is on a macro level scale, where is he in a micro level? So where else is he basically in this story? And there's three primary ways, but this is not exhaustive. I had someone after the service and first service come up to me and say, I actually also saw him here. And I was like, yes, you did, because he is there. And so there's a, there's a fourth way, and there's probably more as well. But um, there, there are three ones today that I think um, are especially important that help us see the gospel through a, a historical theological narrative that was about real people like us on a real storm and a real sea and a real part of the world that still exists today. This really happened, but it's meant to amplify Jesus. It's meant to dial up the idea of the gospel. That is what it's here for. And so if we miss that, we miss the entire point. So here's the three things today. Actually, just do one at a time. The first is Jesus, so if we ask the question, where is he? The first is Jesus is in the centurion. Verse 6 says the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And then in verse 42, the centurion, this is the key phrase, wishing to save Paul, thwarted the soldier's plans. So a couple of quick things with this. 
So first, just kind of broadly and quite simply, the centurion is a straight-up savior figure. And kind of Julius as well, we heard from him how he's expressing kindness to Paul as well. We could lump him in to this too, but we'll focus mostly on the centurion uh, here today. But the idea is, winter's coming, and the centurion was the one who found the ship and, quote, put everyone on board. So that's the idea. Now, here's the theology. So it is with Christ. The threat of winter and death is upon us, just like physically right now in Minnesota. It actually is, right, as we head into December. But spiritually, the idea of winter suggests distance from the sun or from high sun angle or from the true source of light, which is God. And at our latitude in Minnesota, things die every winter, and so do we because of our sin. But, but again, the theology is, but Jesus, like the centurion, finds a ship and actually physically puts us on board. And so the centurion language here is very helpful. If, if this is true, and it is, then this means that we don't find salvation. We don't find Jesus. We don't find the solution. Rather, it finds us or someone else finds it for us. It's an objective, Christians believe in the objective idea of salvation. It's outside of us. It's not in here. We don't tap into something present in our hearts like that's, that's already like pre-existing good or willpower or love or something that's there enough to turn the face of God towards us. That's not how Christians talk or should or how the Bible presents salvation. Rather, it's outside of us. And so we look for help. And that's what the centurion is emblematic of. Paul here, like us, doesn't figure it out himself or do the math. Rather, he's given salvation. And so we see that beautifully here, but we can see it every day in our lives. Like if you guys have ever been helped by anybody, ever, ever, I mean physically helped, or it could be beyond the physical, but if you've ever been helped by someone, you have seen Christianity play out before you. Not in a, oh, that person's good, and so therefore God's going to save them, but in a, that person in that moment was like Jesus to you when he helped you from your sin, when he died for you. And in that, salvation was literally outside of your body. It was in someone else. So again, we call this the objective nature of salvation. It's not subjective for Christians, but it, the gospel and these stories help us to look outwards for help, outwards for salvation, not inwards. This is very different from all other world religions. They, they, they don't think like this. We we are not the solution. Nothing we do or think is the solution. Jesus is the solution himself, saving us when he died on that cross. But then there's more. So that's kind of the first piece, the access point. But then as, as you go on, you also see that Jesus not only saves us in the spirit of the centurion here to Paul and the crew, but Jesus saves us willingly, like the centurion. And uh, and to borrow the exact word here, wishing, wanting to save us. And so like the centurion thwarted the soldiers' plans to kill Paul and the other prisoners, so did Jesus thwart the devil's plans and sin's plans to kill us. So did Jesus deter God's wrath against sin and sinners away from us and onto himself when he took the brunt for us. More on that later. Also, when you think of the centurion, he was very likely following orders from his superior. He was on the job. He was punched in. And so like the centurion was likely following orders from his superior and he wished to do it, 
So did Jesus obey his Father's will when he laid his life down for us. That is a huge part of what Jesus is teaching in the Gospels. He, he says, I'm not here just on my own accord. I'm here on a mission sent by my Father. My Father and I are one, and yet I'm obedient to his will. So the idea is God, wanting to save sinners like us, sent his Son. His Son was obedient to the call, and the call was to go and substitute himself for us. It was, again, it, it's, it's, the centurion is perfectly emblematic of this. But it's heightened because we're talking about God and God's Son and us, not just a bit of history a couple thousand years ago that doesn't really pertain to us historically as much. So, in other words, desire, to see desire is so important in theology. That this, is a, this is so easy to miss when you think about theology or think about, you know, the gospel itself or you're reading a theology book or something or in a class or, or whatever, talking to people. It's so easy to miss this part, but the Bible is at pains to show us this, whether it says it explicitly or whether it shows it implicitly, in act, like, like today in Acts 27. Desire, the desire of God is crucial to see so that the gospel does not simply become a transaction, but a great display of love. Actually, the greatest display of love the world has ever seen is when God did not withhold his one and only son but for you and me in this room right now, gave him up so he might be crucified and we might be brought in. That is the greatest display of love. Like Jesus himself says, there's no greater display of love than when, when a man lays his life down for his friends. And so we can see that sometimes in life or in the world, but he's talking about himself when he says that. He's saying there are many kinds of love, but there's one greatest kind. There is a hierarchy of love. Not all kinds of love are created equal, according to Jesus. There are good kinds, and there's the greatest kind. And he's talking about the greatest kind. When I lay my life down, when I, and then when I want to do that, it's a display of love. And so this is what we need to hear in this. The, the whisper of the desire in the centurion, it, it points to the shout of the desire of God. God wants to save us in this very room today. Forget about yesterday. Forget about five years ago or last year or, or whatever. Shelf that for a second. When we read this, we have to hear the call of God to us in the moment. Like this is meaning God wants to save us in this room right now. He wants, he desires, he wishes that we are saved. And that means he's actively working to make that possible through his church and through his word. He's speaking to us. So think about that because then our focus becomes less daily the question, how am I doing as a Christian? That's not a great question to ask. How am I doing as a Christian? It's not a bad question, but it's very vague and it's very us-centered. See, if the question, for, the, the foremost question, the better question becomes um, thinking more about, or, or how, how am I resting in the fact that God is wanting to save me right now? Or when I picture God, is he watching me sort of do the Christian life well or very poorly? And it's usually very poorly. And then we feel bad about it. Or is it God is right now in the throes of sin and storm and doubt and disbelief. He's pressing into it. He's bearing it. He's moving towards me, wanting to save me. It, and the face of that is Christ crucified. Those are very different questions, right? And what we think about when we think about Jesus looks very different when we ask those two different types of questions. And so what I think these passages remind us of then is the right way to think as a Christian, the right way to think about Jesus daily 
and uh, to make it less about us and sort of, quote, how we're doing as, as a Christian. Because, again, very vague, very law-centered, very us-centered, whereas God is a better way of thinking for us. It's much more in, enlightening and freeing and joy-giving when it focuses on his desire to come into the world to save us. All right, the second angle is seeing Jesus in Paul. Verse 33 to 38, one more time. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. All right, so again, a couple of things. First, broadly, and I talked about this to start the sermon, but we see this extreme calmness in Paul's life amidst the storm. So the storm's still raging at this point, and the, the crew is like, it's way more important to try to keep the ship afloat than to eat. And so they haven't eaten for, for a couple of weeks. And so at this point, you know, Paul is in the face of that calm. And among the crew, uh, and I think this is, this is really what you see. In the face of that, among the crew, Paul breaks bread, invites them to sit down and eat. And all of that, I think, becomes broadly this wonderful picture of the Christian life. And that is receiving from Jesus, like the crew from Paul, amidst life's storms. In fact, in uh, Luke 21, same author of Acts, uh, which is no coincidence, uh, the same language is used from Jesus' mouth. This is why, again, I think that the Bible is showing us how Jesus and Paul are linked here. The spirit of Jesus is alive in Paul. So uh, Luke 21, 7 to 8 says, Jesus says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Which links up almost word for word here, right, with what Paul says when he says, not a hair of any of your heads will perish in verse 34. So Jesus says, even though we'll be hated for being Christians, for being, you know, for the good and for grace, we've seen that play out a lot narratively in, in, in Acts, and, and Paul's saying, even though the storm rages, not a hair of your head will perish. Now, think about that phrase for a second, because this is easy to, easy to read over really quickly, but it's a loaded phrase. Pause. What does it mean that not a hair will perish from our heads. Why is that on repeat here in, in the Bible? First, what it can't mean, right? Because it, it can't mean that we won't suffer. It, it can't mean that we won't suffer even greatly in life. Uh, think about even literally the idea that everyone, the healthiest of people, shed hair every day. Like hair perishes from their scalp. That just happens, like literally every day. So if we really push the, the teaching here, it can't be that we won't suffer or even like eventually perish or die. Everyone dies. The Bible says it's been given to man, given to humankind, that everyone should experience physical death. Uh, Hebrews 9, 28, I think. And so that's, that's a truth. That, that's, so, it, so it can't mean that we won't suffer or perish. So what it means then is that like smaller storms, Jesus is with us through the greater storms, even the storm of death, ensuring our bodies will be raised and put together back again into new life. This is a resurrection promise. When, when hairs on our head, like not a single hair of your head will perish, that is a bodily resurrection promise 
or call ahead into the future amidst a death passage. Because death is just, you can, death reeks here in a way all throughout this passage until the very end when you, when you realize it's been tricked in a way by, by God. We'll, we'll come back to that. But this is a resurrection promise amidst a death passage. And I think it also means that Jesus' blood is, is comprehensive. And so, when, again, going back to the hair thing, uh, it means Jesus' blood is systemic in how it saves us. In other words, hair is a very small thing, right, and a very seemingly unneeded thing on our scalp. If we lose one, we don't, like, like stop and think about it necessarily, unless we're worried about becoming bald or something. Well, whatever. Hang with me. All right. No, but that, we don't think about that, right? If we, if we see one just on the table... We don't think. It's a small thing. But this is why it's important. I think what this is saying is Jesus' blood saves every single molecule and atom in our bodies. Jesus' blood saves every single molecule and atom, every cell in your bodies. The smallest of particles, the smallest of hairs, the most ingrained of sins, Even things we don't realize are there, but are still keeping us from God, Jesus' blood covers. Just like every single person was saved in that storm in Acts 27, right? So there really is nothing to fear, is what the idea is here. When Jesus and Paul both say, not a hair of your head will perish, I mean, in the subtext of that is there really is nothing to fear in life. We will fear, but the perfect love of God for us that gave up his son and that promises eternal life quenches, stops the fear in its tracks. It qualifies it. It puts a massive asterisk the size of the earth next to it, right? And so um, there really is nothing to fear in the face of resurrection promise and our Savior who first took that path for us. The second thing maybe you saw in this passage is that this story calls us back to Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, where it says in Mark 6 that Jesus, before a hungry crowd, took the loaves, looked up to heaven, and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the people. Again, like the bottom passage here is a small excerpt from the greater thing there, but just so you can see this, exactly like in Acts 27, 35. So again, there's so much we could do with this theologically. Um, if we were preaching Mark uh, 6, we'd say more. But, but I think in light of Acts 27, there's a couple of things going on here. As we see Paul as a Christ figure in Acts 27, two primary things, and they, they really relate. They kind of flow into one thing, but you'll, you'll see. First is, Jesus, like Paul, is a rest giver. This reminded me of a Mary and Martha in Luke 10, where... Mary and Martha are before Jesus. Jesus is in their home, and Martha was busy tending to him, serving, and Mary was just sitting there. And Martha gets a little bit upset, saying, you know, I'm serving you. I, I'm, I'm trying to, like, help this moment, essentially, you know, and Mary's just sitting there. And in response, like, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed Look at what Jesus does, though. He qualifies that statement. Few things are needed, or actually, you know what? Only one. Isn't that cool? The Son of God qualified himself. I love it. But anyway, only one. What's the one thing? It's him. And that's what Mary is doing. She's sitting at the feet of 
of Christ, the Son of God, who is God's answer, solution to hell, to separation from God, to our sin need. So see, like the crew, when you see that come out in Acts 27, when Paul says, you guys, you've continued in such suspense, you've worked so hard, you need to stop and eat. See the similarities? We're like the crew. We're like Martha. We, we're busy. We, we, like Paul, are continuing in suspense. We're trying to elongate our lives. We're, we're trying to do enough good in the world to be remembered or to save ourselves. But death is certain, no matter what. No matter how hard we work or how good we are, people die, which tells us what? That it's not about doing good, because good people die. And they're buried right next to bad people. And they're in the same amount of dirt. And they're the same size gravestones. It is not about doing good. Otherwise, that wouldn't happen. This is what Ecclesiastes says over and over again, if you read that book in the Old Testament. Good and dead people are buried next to each other. And a lot of times, the good person dies first. This is not an anti-good statement. It, is a, it can't be about what we do or that wouldn't happen. It's backwards. It must be about something else. And, of course, we would say it is. It's about Jesus. It's about grace, not about moral effort. And so Christianity is like sitting down. So some of you might be brand new to the faith today. If not, just be reminded of this. Christian, you want Christianity is like? You want to know? It is like sitting down, much more like sitting down than standing up or running. Christianity is like not working for life, but receiving life from Jesus. And I would add, and this is the second thing here, Christianity is more like eating than fasting. It's more like looking to Jesus as the ascetic for us on the cross rather than us being an ascetic ourselves. You know, Paul is saying here, you guys need to eat. He's not saying you need to harm yourselves and cut yourselves and bleed yourselves and pray more and fast and starve yourselves and wear yourselves out to the bone for God. Other religions think that way, but not Christians. Christians are more about eating than fasting. Is that interesting? Paul here is like, you guys need to eat. Jesus is like, you guys need to eat. But in John 6, he kind of qualifies that as well. Look what he says. I am the bread from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That, that's a, a wonderful teaching, but a hard teaching, right? If you've read this before, you know what happens right after this, right? A bunch of people leave him because they think this is insanity. See, Jesus is not a moral teacher. He's a savior. He's not saying, feed the poor, even though it's good. He's saying, eat my flesh. Drink my blood, then you'll be saved. In fact, if you don't, you're hellbound. If you don't, you're not saved. Jesus, so Mark 6 and then Acts 27, all this together is Paul, but really Jesus in Paul, saying, you need to eat my flesh. You need to ingest your, you need to fill yourself, nourish yourself on the fact that I'm dying for you on the cross. Communion represents this. That's why Christians eat bread and wine all the time. Because we can't get enough of Jesus' body and blood. And it's not just about conversion. In the Old Testament, if you've read this story before, did the manna 
uh, come up from the dew of the ground every day for Israel once or every single day? Every single day. It's the same with Jesus, who here in this passage says, I am the true manna, the true bread from heaven. He is our daily bread. See, the Christian life is about sitting down, closing our mouths a lot in in one sense because we have nothing to say back to God, like in a self-justifying way. But it is a resting thing. It is a laughing thing. I mean, all the other religions of the world are busy cutting themselves and spending themselves and fasting, becoming ascetic. And Christians are like, no. No, we're going to sit down together and eat and be thankful for what God has given. We're going to receive from God. We're going to laugh together. We're going to worship the Christ who was cut and starved and worn out for us. That's what it means to be Christian. Do you see the difference? That's how different we are. Christians are not one way to God. We are in every way different from all other world religions. Christ is the way, the only way, the different way, the way that's about him saying stuff like this, not about showing how to find the path ourselves. And all that kind of gets me to this last part here, the third and final piece that gets more at the how behind all this. And I've been saying it, so I'm not like hiding this along the way or anything, but it, we see it, we, we see the how in, in the passage. And that, that third and final thing is Jesus is the ship. So we talked about this a bit before and we talked about the centurion symbolically putting us almost on Christ it's the same with how Noah's Ark in the Old Testament, Genesis 6 to 9, represents Christ as well. How God put Noah and his family on the ark, literally, and then shut them in himself to help them survive the worldwide flood. In that story, Christ is the ark. In this story, Christ is the ship. It's the same kind of story. Which then adds this. If we see Christ as like, or the ship is emblematic of Christ, it adds this very helpful piece of theology. So, Hang with me here. This is huge. The most important part of the passage. Christ is the ship and the ship broke apart. So in verses 41 to 40 and 44, it says, the stern was being broken by the surf and the centurion ordered that the rest who couldn't swim make for land on the planks and pieces of the ship. So the ship broke apart and through its destruction, it provided rafts for people to float to safety. Do you see how this is starting to sound a lot like Jesus? And more than that, the gospel. If the ship wasn't broken, there'd be no flotation devices for the non-swimmers. So here's the theology to, to make a beeline to the cross with this, which we need to do. The ship, by being broken up, provided safe passage. Christ's body by being broken up on that cross, provide safe passage for people who can't swim or do enough good, which is all of us. Isn't that amazing? You see the how here, how it's important? It's not enough for us just to talk in generic terms of God saving sinners. That's good, but the Bible doesn't stop there. It expresses, it talks about the how. How does he do it? We see salvation generally in the centurion. We see nourishment generally in Paul. We see the how in the ship. Not even a person, an inanimate object that God redeems for his own gospel purposes. It's actually a very layered idea in this passage. 
<clears throat> well, actually, first of all, we see it in Mark 4 as well, which I read earlier. It says that Jesus fell asleep on the stern, and in Acts 27, it says specifically, the stern broke apart to help us make these connections. And it's a layered idea also in the sense that we see it first in the broken bread. We see it second in the broken ship, uh, both of which typify Christ. And, the, and the, the idea is the broken pieces are the important thing. They do something, right? So you can see it like this. Broken bread nourishes us from hunger. I'm speaking from the Bible here, so speaking of Acts 27 and uh, in Mark 6. The broken ship rescued them from the storm, but this is what it all points to. The broken Jesus saves us from our sins. Again, Jesus needed to be broken on that cross. There's no way to make it for land if he wasn't broken. He took the brunt of the storm. He took the beating of the waves, the beating of our sins. He was whipped, flogged, starved, stripped, and drowned on that cross for us. He talks about his death in those terms earlier in his ministry, about being baptized into death. He was drowned on that cross. That we might be brought in. And so when you look back, I, I want to read a psalm with you guys to start to wrap this up. I'm going to look at the first four verses of Psalm 69. And I'm doing this uh, because thematically it relates. If you look at some of the Old Testament poems, these psalms, songs that were written, they're prophetic. I'll, I'll get to that. But um, they use a lot of the same imagery of, I'm in trouble in my sin, linking that with drowning imagery. So it fits really well thematically and, and whatnot with them. Um, with Acts 27. Let me read this in a couple of comments to close. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. So let me ask you this, maybe a couple of questions. First, is this a guy who thinks the solution is himself? Not even close, right? But here's another question. Is this the prayer of a sinner? It totally is, right? Isn't this what Acts 27 has been imaging? This is the Christian life, floating on the raft to shore, clinging to the gospel for dear life amidst storms like Depressions, anxieties, sins, addictions, doubts, fears. The goal is not to grow into an Olympic swimmer, but to cling to the gospel. This is such a good image, image you guys. And, and because it doesn't make the solution finding victory in life. And we will sometimes. But these people on the rafts clinging for dear life aren't like finding victory. You know, they're like barely making it. And only because of this hunk of wood that came off the bow or something. It's like only because of that. And I think it's important because it's not like God is stingy. It's if you're suffering, pray that it'll be alleviated. God is not stingy. He loves giving good gifts and he will heal and he will use graces like medicines and he will, he's at work. But at the same time, we're not going to finish our race necessarily like we're in the 100th mile of a mega marathon feeling amazing. Like, whoa, 
This is like, so, life's so easy, you know, and it was so hard when I became a Christian, but now, because of whatever, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is how we'll finish, probably. Clinging for dear life to the bloodied body of Jesus. That is how you will probably, and that is enough. If your anxiety is not going away, in one sense, it's okay because you have the wooden ship. You have the, a piece of the, the hull. You have a piece of the body of Christ and you're making it to dry land. You will be okay. You will make it. Maybe our headaches will be healed. Maybe our cancers will be healed. Maybe we'll see the miraculous and it's right to pray for these things. But it's not right to replace Jesus with them because Jesus is the ship. And if we're clinging to him, that, that's all we need. And so that's one angle on this, but let me just say one more thing and flip this around. Because there's another side of the coin. When we talk about psalms like this, we talk about them prophetically. And, and this is what I mean. There's another side to the psalm. It's not a human side, it's a divine side. Because this is the prayer of Christ on the cross. This is how, why Jesus quotes psalms like this when he's dying claiming them for himself, commandeering the words, saying actually what David went through who wrote these things, it was actually me ahead of time. It was prophetic. It was pointing to the suffering I would go through. And so it's the prayer of Christ. He, he is the thirsty, separated from God, shipwrecked, hated for no reason Jesus, uh, Savior who came to get us. And this is important to understand this in theology how the way that God saves us from our shipwreck is by becoming shipwrecked for us. Who is hated by as many people as the hairs on his head so that no hairs on our head would be harmed. Do you see the solution is not just God plucking us out of something even though we might be able to describe it that way. It's, he's saying, the way I'm saving you is by me, myself, becoming cursed for you. So I'm saving you from your shipwreck by myself becoming shipwrecked for you. I'm saving you from famine by myself being starved. I, I am the ascetic. I am the one who's going without so you might have. This crazy little passage in the Bible about a broken up ship says more to us about the gospel than all of the ethical portions of the New Testament combined. Let me say that again. This crazy little passage about a broken up ship says more to us about the heart of the gospel than all of the ethical portions of the New Testament combined. Without question. Because what's the center? A broken, cursed, storm-tossed, crucified Jesus who wished to save us by dying for us. So pray this psalm in your distress. But remember, the way God answers is by taking on the curses of it for you and me. And then rejoice and don't fear. He saves every molecule, every cell, every hair, and he forgives every sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage uh, that screams to us the gospel. It is entirely about you. Praise God.
free us in that, to see the gospel in it, that you didn't just die and were broken on that cross, but you allowed history to unfold in a way that would suggest the story all over again, that would implicitly tell us the story all over again, because it's that important. The point here is just to try not, is not to try really hard to not get in shipwrecks. The point is we're in a shipwreck. Our life is a shipwreck. In our sin, we have faced the, faced the northeaster. The more, the more we try to sail, we cannot make headway. And we give up all hope for salvation, all hope when we trust in our muscles, in our willpower, in our good deeds. We, we lose all hope, like the sailors lost all hope. And yet, you provide bread, and yet you redeem, and yet you save, and yet you, and the way you do that is you allow yourself to be broken, and you provide us rafts to make it to dry land. Unbelievable. That is so unbelievably awesome that, God, you are like that. You are not just telling us what to do and how to live our lives. This is, you are coming into our lives and living them for us. You are wearing our shame and our guilt. You are saving us. You are breaking your body for weak and wounded sinners like us. And so help us to believe that, God, and then to love your people, love the church as you first been loved by, as we have first been loved by you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.